0: Welcome to the Semester at Sea Wavelengths Podcast. This is Episode 12, and I, Patrick Fennell, will be your host. Every week on the podcast, we hear interviews, stories, and other audio from students, alumni, and or staff. Semester at Sea is a biannual study abroad program taking place in the fall and spring semesters, where students get the opportunity to study abroad on a ship, and where the world becomes your classroom. Semester at Sea is hosted by ISE, the Institute for Shipboard Education, a nonprofit based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Semester at Sea is made possible with support of listeners like you. Whether student, alumni, or neither, visit semesteratsea.org to get involved and find out more. You can also find Semester at Sea on any of your favorite social media platforms. Applications are currently open and accepted on a rolling basis. Donations are welcome and serve students the opportunity and experiences like you hear on this show. We are switching up the format of the show this week. Um, We will just be featuring one big segment now to introduce that Indian Interport lecturer Nisha Agrawal has been working on poverty, inequality and development issues for more than two decades and has served as CEO of Oxfam India starting with its inception in 2008. In this Explorer's Seminar, Nisha gives a presentation on the history of India's development, starting in 1991, when major reforms were undertaken and India opened up its economy and joined the globalizing world. She also examines the impact of liberalization on growth, inequality, and poverty reduction, and compares 1991 to 2015, the contemporary time when she gave the speech when expectations of a second round of reforms were high. Now, enjoy.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Nisha Agrawal. Nisha was our interport lecturer on the fall 2011 voyage which was a reunion for us because we've known each other for many years, but we hadn't seen each other for many years. And so I, she was such a hit, such a success, that when I found out that I was going to come back on the voyage, one of the first people I contacted was actually Nisha to ask her to come back and do this again. And I think she's now thinking, given all that everybody wants from her that maybe she needs a vacation after this, but uh, unfortunately she's going back to Delhi to take on more of her role as the chief executive officer of Oxfam in India. Nisha has a PhD in economics from the University of Virginia. She first went to the Impact Group in Melbourne, Australia, where she was a research fellow, and then she moved from there to the World Bank, where she practiced development economics in the field in Cambodia and Vietnam before returning to India in 2008 as the inaugural CEO of Oxfam India. And Nisha tonight, as you can see from the screen in front of you, is going to talk about India, growth, inequality, and poverty. So please welcome Nisha Agrawal.
2: Good evening, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here and to be back on this very exciting trip. You know, I think you'll realize and you probably know already India... It is hard to explain. I mean, there's so much going on. As I was getting ready to prepare for this lecture, I'm an economist by training, Mark said, I looked at the cover of the latest Economist magazine. I don't know if you're still reading your magazines while on ship. But there's an elephant with jet engines strapped to its body, and it says, India's chance to fly. You know, and it always makes you think, like, if we're an elephant, do we really want to fly? I mean, why... why? You know, we are large, we have 1.2 billion people, and people are always urging us to fly. And how do you fly and carry 1.2 billion people with you? That's the question. So I was thinking, you know, is it really our chance to fly? Do we even want to fly? Should we even think about flying? I mean, why do we all need to be flying? So I kind of prepared my talk around that. The other thing is, you know, when you start thinking about India, and Mark said, tell them a little bit about the history of India, One of the things that struck me when I came back to India, after being overseas for 30 years, is people would talk about their 5,000 year long history. You know, in any other country, people talk about their 200 year old history or maximum 2,000 maybe, but in India, when you walk the streets, people will always be talking about their glorious. And I thought, now how far back does Mark want me to go in my talk about India? I said, well, I'll leave the history to him. I'll just tell you about today and compare and contrast two moments where this kind of hype about India was experienced in 1991. So we had this moment of what we call a Big Bang reform, and that word is only being used now after 25 years. And so what happened in that Big Bang and what, what is going on right now when you land in India and you'll see this kind of buzz and this kind of hype about India. It's a very particular moment, at, in, and this is only from last week, this magazine. So... Just one sentence on pre-91, because we don't have time, and then really what happened after these big reforms in 91 till this moment, and where are we now in, in India's development history? So basically, I just, I'm summing up the whole history in one, one slide, but to say if you divide up India, India's development since the post-independence period of 47, roughly 60 years, you can kind of divide it into two parts. With the first three decades, economically speaking, You can divide it up. We kind of had a centrally planned economy and very low economic growth coming after six decades of stagnation before 1947. So stagnation for a long period and then this very modest growth for about 30 years with growth in per capita incomes, per person income of 1% a year. So very gradual improvement in people's lives. Suddenly then in the second half, those last 30 years, that growth rising to four times as much. So suddenly we saw India growing, you know. And since 1980, so they've shot up from 1% per annum, which is very slow, you really wouldn't notice the difference, to this 4%. So something changed in the 80s. Reforms started to happen. India started to open up its markets and get connected to the world economy, but not in a very systematic way. So the first systematic package of reforms was only launched in 91. And therefore, that's that moment that we say where we had these Big Bang reforms. So now, you know, what is similar about 91 and 2015? The hype is very similar. A new government came into being in in 91, and we just had this government. Many of you probably have never heard of India's prime ministers in the last two, three decades, but I think most of you would have heard about Modi. You know, he's our first rock star prime minister who... When he goes to the U.S., he meets people in Madison Square Garden, and wherever he goes, there's this huge buzz about him, because the Indians overseas are also very excited to have somebody like him who's so pro-business. And what he came was on an agenda of growth and development, and we have a very young population, and we've kind of had jobless growth for many decades, so the fact that he's... Saying to young people, I'm going to create growth and create jobs is what is creating this big hype about him. So people are very excited that we have somebody who's seen to be so pro-business because we need that growth and we need those jobs. We had these big bang reforms in 91. And then now, if you read the papers and headlines, there's all this talk of big bang. This word is there again. And we have the big announcements of our policy reforms usually at the time of the budget when The finance minister presents next year's budget to the parliament to approve it, which is on the last day of February. So it was on February 28th, on Saturday, while I was here. So I missed all that excitement. But for weeks, there has been no other talk. If you switch on any TV channel in India, they would all be saying, what do you expect from the budget? And then everybody would say, big bang reforms, you know. So it was just like a lot of hype being created about India. So this is a newspaper clipping. I don't know if you can read it. But again, these are the kinds of headlines that one saw, pack that big bang. It says this is from last week, budget 1991 launched new India, and this year's budget must power us to 10% growth. So that's the kind of talk. You know, we we are still poor, we have a lot of jobless people, and we did achieve double-digit growth for almost two decades after the 1991 reforms. And that's the kind of expectation that Saturday's budget is going to put us back on that path, and instead of 5 or 6% a year, we are going to start growing again at double-digit growth, right? So this this is the mood and scene that you will be landing in, a very hyped-up one about India's prospects. What happened in 91? We were facing a balance of payments crisis, which basically meant we didn't have enough foreign exchange to pay for the goods that we needed to import. And so suddenly, in one major, package, which was announced at the time of uh, the new government, a lot of, basically we opened up to the world economy, markets were liberalized. So trade was opened up, Uh, we went from exports to GDP of about 6% to 24%. Most industries were opened up to foreign direct investment. Taxes were reformed to streamline them. The financial sector was opened up, so we had more than one state-owned bank. We suddenly, foreign banks were allowed in. The fiscal deficit, which meant the government was spending more than it was taking in, that was trimmed. And opening up of many sectors, like the telecommunication sector, where we all grew up in a time where you had to wait 20 years to get a landline. You know, I mean, we all grew up in a time, no, not, not you, before mobile phones. But even landline phones, you had to wait a long time. You know, you couldn't take it for granted that you could get a phone easily. Uh, we had no TV or one black and white TV that taught you how to grow potatoes. I mean, it was that era and suddenly everything changed, you know. So airlines, we only had one domestic airline and suddenly we now have many, a lot of competition in the airline sector. So new banks, new airlines, new telephone companies, suddenly we opened up to the private sector, essentially. And what this did is is huge. I mean, it transformed India we went from an economy of $1 trillion in 1990 to $7 trillion now. So a very, you know, a seven-fold increase by 2013. These are all dollars adjusted for purchasing power, for those of you economists in the audience, because the same dollar will buy a lot more in India since labor is cheaper. You have to adjust for that, right? Per capita incomes went up five-fold, so we were roughly 1,160 dollars per capita. So per person's income in a year, So you take the whole, everything we produce and divide it by our whole population, which is 1.25 billion, and that would be, on average, a person's income. So that's gone up fivefold to $5,000. And India went from being the 10th largest economy in the world to the third largest. We are the third largest. The US is number one, China number two, and we overtook Japan in 2011. So suddenly we, we grew very large. You know, in economic terms, we grew very large. And this this is the result of almost double-digit growth from 91 onwards when suddenly, basically, we created a market economy. Now, what else happened? So, all kinds of other things happened. You know, cell phones, for example, per 100 people we went from zero. But that's not surprising, everybody was at zero to now 71 percent. I mean, no matter where you go in India, people have a phone, so it's really great to have that kind of connectivity. When we do a campaign in Oxfam and we say, do you think gender equality should be like this, we get calls from all over, and we have this fantastic technology where people call and we don't answer their phone because it will cost them, we call them back. So lots of people take part in all kinds of, uh, so you feel uh, you know, very connected. The market capitalization of listed companies, so this is sort of an, one measure of wealth, went up from 12% of GDP to 68, so income was being created, wealth was being created, And this now, you know, is something quite new. The number of billionaires in dollars. So Forbes puts out a list every year. We had one billionaire in 1990 and now we have 56. So, uh, and we now rank sixth in the whole world in the number of billionaires, right? So, I mean, a lot of wealth is being created. So you're going to see that when you get there, you're going to see extreme wealth and extreme poverty hand in hand. And this is something to keep in mind that in a way, what we say is that two Indias emerged out of this before ninety one we were there was one India kind of uniform I mean we were all in it together, we were all poor together after this, you know markets opened up, and those who had the chance who had something to sell, who were educated, who were healthy, could grab those opportunities and move ahead and Half of India which didn't have that kind of investment got left behind and so instead of more or less the whole country looking and feeling the same and everybody at the same standard of living. Suddenly we started to diverge very sharply. So the serv- the sectors that opened up were really the services sector. You know, we have a big IT hub in Bangalore. We have a big financial hub in Bombay. All of these require skilled labor. These are not the kind of development that happened in East Asia, where We liberalized where those countries, China, Vietnam, Indonesia, they did two things that India hasn't done yet. We haven't invested in agriculture, which is where the bulk, 50% of our population, still derives its income from agriculture. We invested in the 60s, we had a Green Revolution, and then we became very complacent and we haven't done anything about it since. And we also didn't promote the kind of labor-intensive manufacturing that East Asia has done. You know, textiles, garments, footwear, toys, electronics, which, kind of sucked people out of agriculture into better-paying jobs. So our people are still, if you like, stuck on very small farms. And so that is where poverty is today. And until we address the crisis in the agricultural sector, we are not really going to be able to address poverty in a very systematic way. So many kinds of divides started to happen. One, Amartya Sen, who you would have heard of, our very famous economist, he said that, you know, if the current trends continue, India will soon be part California, and part Sub-Saharan Africa. So for the first time, we've started to worry about inequality. When you're all poor, you're all poor. You know, nobody had access to anything really, you know. Getting somebody who went abroad and brought you back a pair of jeans, that was like the ultimate luxury for any teenager or any Indian practically, you know, to have a pair of jeans because we didn't have access to anything that global markets were producing. Now you have a part that really, is totally, I mean, you will see that if any of you are going into Bombay and Delhi, super rich people who are living the same lifestyle that that, let's say Californians or New Yorkers, whoever would live. And then if you look at many of the ways that we are still living, it's really sub-Saharan Africa. And one big contrast that happened in India is the, the sharp divide that emerged between the north and south of India. So in the past, their per capita incomes were pretty much similar, and the south and the west then started to grow, The IT hub is in, as I said, in the south, in Bangalore, in Pune, and the financial capital of, the commercial capital of India is Bombay, and Gujarat, very entrepreneurial, very prosperous now. So there's like the south and the west, where per capita incomes are now twice those in the north and the east. So when Oxfam India was formed eight years ago, we said, you know, we should look at where we should be working, and we ranked all the states, and the bottom seven are in a contiguous belt in the north. That's where poverty, those are the home for two-thirds of the poor in India today. And the program we inherited, because Oxfam had been working in India since 1951, was entirely in the South and the West. So for the last five years, we've had to do a major transformation of everything we do, really shutting down all our offices in the South and the West, phasing out all the local NGOs that we were supporting, and then slowly moving our whole program into these northern and eastern states, which which are really the home to poverty today. Poverty came down over this period, but gradually. So if you take the global definition of poverty, uh, extreme poverty is when people spend less than $1.25 per day per person. In 1994, it was about 49%, and today it's down to 24%. Now that looks good, but over that period, it's coming down at even less than two percentage points per year. Vietnam and China were able to remove 4% of their population out of poverty each year. So if we had done a different kind of opening up, where we had also combined it with investments in agriculture and in manufacturing, it's possible that we could have eradicated hardcore poverty by now. But a quarter of our population lives still in this kind of extreme poverty of below $1. $0.25. And then if you take a new poverty line, which is slightly higher, $2 per day, then the popu- I mean it was almost entirely the whole country was living at that eighty two percent and it's down to fifty nine percent so it's still very high. but that is a higher definition of, of poverty, not the very extreme. So you can see that you know growth has led to some poverty reduction but not at a pace that other countries have achieved. On human development, the UN system puts together these ratings where you look at how long people can expect to live, life expectancy how many children are in school, and then also the per capita incomes. It's called the Human Development Index. So we are at, we rate 135 out of 187 countries that are rated every year. If you look at that bundle of who, which countries are around us, they're all entirely sub-Saharan African countries. So that's the sense in which Sen is saying part of India remains as a sub-Saharan African country. Our indicators would be worse than any other country in South Asia, for example. So we're doing worse than Bangladesh, or Pakistan, or uh, Sri Lanka, or Nepal. In some of these indicators, we are doing maybe slightly better than Afghanistan. But you look at Afghanistan, it's it's been a conflict country war. You know, it's had war for decades. And that is the only country better than us in the region, right? So we are really severely lacking behind. Child malnutrition, now at 48%. So 40% of the world's malnourished children live in India. And it's surprising how we are just not able to figure out why we are stuck at such high levels of malnutrition. So uh, policymakers will say, oh, it's a dilemma and they throw up their hands and they then go on to do something else. Instead of figuring out why it's so stuck. A lot of it is not about access to food. We now have programs that provide a minimum amount of food to every family it's a lot to do with gender issues for example that we don't feed girls or we feed women last and so they're giving birth at very young age early child early marriage they're giving birth at very young ages to very tiny and malnourished children who then never really grow out of that it has a lot to do with the fact that mal for uh, you can eat food but if you're if you don't have access to water and sanitation then levels of diarrhea are very high, and so that food is not really helping you. It's not nutritious food in that sense for you. Your body's not gaining any nutrition from it. So a lot of very complicated factors where these rates look quite alarming. And then on the quality of education, we've now got every child into school, but we are not able to make our teachers show up to actually teach. One of the NGOs does, Pratham does a survey every year of of the quality of learning. And what we are finding is that 50% of grade 5 children cannot read a grade 2 textbook. And there are similar numbers for math or English or anything. Learning is not happening. Children are now coming to school, but learning is not happening. So we have a long way to go in, in terms of actually developing socially. And then on gender equality, this is again, you will see this, talk about it, feel it, you know, you've all heard about the gang rape in December two years ago, that really for the first time hit India and brought people out onto the streets and hit all the foreign press of how unsafe a country India is for women. But if on this ranking, again produced by the UN, we are 127 out of 152 countries. So again, in the bottom 15% of all countries for which a rating is available. And what we measure on this index is, you know, right to reproductive health, empowerment, like what proportion of uh, parliamentarians are women, for example, and then what proportion of women are in the labor market, how many are working outside their homes in paid employment. So on all of these, you can say that, see that this is a major issue for us. And one figure captures it, really the tragedy of, of women in India, more than anything else, is the child sex ratio. So the line going to the top is India. It's the number of boys per 100 girls. For the whole world and for every other country in the world, including China, which also has a similar problem where there's a high rate of female feticide. So, you know, people go and when they get pregnant, they find out if if it's a male or a female child that they're carrying, and if it's a female child, they abort it. So it's, it's a very unusual thing. We are the only country in the world where there are so many boys per 100 girls, 120. And, and the normal ratio should obviously be right around, you know, 100 and 100. Um, in fact, sometimes you have more girls because, I don't know, they're stronger or, they, or the girl babies live in other countries longer. So this is a very abnormal situation. And the worst thing is it's still getting worse. We have not arrested this trend. And every year, when we, every 10 years when we do our census, we are finding that we are still getting worse and worse. And this kind of captures... The very low value that Indians put on on a girl, child, and on a woman, that you don't value it enough to even give birth to a child, or if you do, if you don't have access to getting an abortion, then you basically kill the baby after it's born, but either in the womb or after. So it's a it's a really tragic situation. I mean, you have a lot of classes on gender and so on in, in your courses. I can't get into all the reasons... Uh, here, but this this is the very sorry situation, and very high levels of violence. When a rape happens on the streets, you hear about it, but the bulk of violence is domestic violence within the four walls of your own home. This is the place where you should be safe, but 80 or 90 percent of violence happens within the family, and this unfortunately is not unique to India or to South Asia. In India and in South Asia, all the surveys show that one out of two women say that they're subject to violence. And a recent survey done by the UN, 60%, this is just from last November, 60% of Indian men uh, said that admitted to inflicting violence on their wife or their partner. Not all of it is physical violence. A lot of it is emotional or psychological, not allowing her to go outside the house or not allowing her to make any kind of decision. But a third at least say that it's physical. So that's very high. But in the whole world, this figure is one out of three. So it cuts across women of all classes, all countries, all, all everything, all religion. Everywhere this is a problem. And it's, it's still hidden. It's still considered to be something very private. And we are trying to break that silence around it to say, you know, this is not anything that the woman needs to be ashamed of, until you speak up, until you reach out and get help, you're going to continue to suffer from this and and there's no... so just breaking the silence and getting women to access the shelter and the support and counseling and so on that is available to them. So a very very large problem in India and South Asia. And you look at the social acceptance of this problem, the reason that it's so large is not just, we have a fantastic domestic violence law, so it's not that the government is not doing anything about it, it's about social attitudes. So both men and women agree, you know, 50% of men and women agree that it's acceptable to beat a woman for all kinds of reasons. And in each case, the percentage of women saying that this is a good reason to beat a woman is higher than the percentage of men. So you can see how deeply ingrained It is in us as a society. Men and women think that it's fine to beat a woman, number one, if she shows disrespect for her in-laws, number two, if she neglects the house or children, number three, if she argues with him. Amartya Sen wrote a book saying argumentative Indians, but clearly it's not acceptable. Four, she goes out without telling him. And then fifth, he suspects of infidelity. So, and in every case, the percentage of women saying yes, if this is the cause, it's fine to beat a woman is higher than in men, unfortunately. So Oxfam has been doing a lot of work on this. We are about to launch a global campaign now to change social attitudes. The bulk of our work has so far focused on getting laws and policies and programs in place. But now we are saying it's actually in the heart of every single person. And we need to reach into schools and colleges because after that, it's between the ages of 13 and 23 is what all the surveys are showing when these kinds of ideas become accepted. What is considered masculine? It's considered, mas- you know, n- you're not a male if you're not beating your wife or, you're n- or for women to say, well, we deserve, deserve it and be accepted. So we accept it. So we're going to launch a very big campaign by the end of this year, and we really want to start working with very young children to change ideas of what is acceptable, to just to, to, do, to say it's not acceptable to have violence in our lives. Okay, so moving ahead from a very grim subject now to this very flashy future where we are about to fly. So, you know, I put this picture there to say, a chance to fly, huh? And you see this elephant with the, with the turbo jets and, and very hyped up language about India. So these are all quotes from The Economist and this is what you're going to land into. So if India could only take wing, it would become the global economy's high flyer. But to do so, it must shed the legacy of counterproductive policy. That task falls to Arun Jaitley, who's our finance minister, who on February 28th will present the first full budget of a government elected with a mandate to slash red tape and boost growth. In July 1991, a landmark budget opened up the economy to trade, foreign capital, and competition. India today needs something equally momentous, right? So this was the expectation for February 28th, and more, like strap on the engine. India possesses untold promise. Its people are entrepreneurial and roughly half, this is our biggest asset, half of the 1.25 billion population is under 25 years old. So it's incredible. This is really our biggest asset, and you will feel it from the moment you land, and you're anywhere in India, the energy and the buzz, because we are such a young country china because of its one child policy is aging very rapidly it will be the first country in the world to grow old before it gets rich many other countries in europe in japan etc growing are aging very rapidly because they are not even have couples are not having two children so they are not even replacing uh, the population levels america is lucky because it's an open country it has A lot of in-migration, migrants are usually young people who come to make a better life for themselves. So America remains younger than most European countries and Japan and other countries in the world. But we are soon going to be the youngest country in the world. It's poor, so it has a lot of scope to catch up growth. You know, when the the poorer you are, that means a lot of unutilized resources, people, land, capital. And so we are still at $5,000 per capita. Compared with China, which is twice as much already and is already you beginning to see a little bit slowing down of China's growth, which was also in double digit for all these decades. And Brazil, which is three times as much. So these are kind of the comparators that we look at large countries and how fast can they grow. And the reason for hope, or the reason for hype, if you want to put it that way, the real, real reason for hope, again, these all quotes, is the prospect for more reforms. Last May, this is the new Prime Minister, Narendra Modi's, Bhartiya Janata Party, this is the BJP party, won a huge election victory on a promise of a better-run economy. His government spent its early months, this is economists like, putting a rocket up a sluggish civil service and on other useful groundwork, but the true test of its reformist credentials will be the budget. So again, you know, what is this budget going to deliver? And will it take off then? So it says adversity in the past has been the spur to radical change in India, the 91 budget was done in response to a crisis. You know, we had to do something. The real danger is that with inflation falling and India enjoying a boost from cheaper energy, we, you're seeing global prices are quite low right now, the country's leaders duck the tough, tough reforms needed for lasting success. That would be a huge mistake. They have Mr. Modi and Mr. Jaitli have a rare chance to turbocharge an Indian takeoff and they must not waste it. So this, this was all sort of the big buzz and the big hype. Now, why is it unlikely that India will take off? I think, you know, the best way to really think about India is, firstly, that it is an elephant and it's not some, you can't move countries of this size around so rapidly. But there's also a second reason. The kinds of reforms that we did in 91, which was just opening up markets, they were very easy reforms and those are done. The three reforms that we need to do, which again, The Economist itself is highlighting, It's saying, you know, we need to reform input markets. So we need to reform land, labor, and energy markets. And it's only when these inputs are available to industry can business take off and can growth take off. Now, these are not the same kinds of reforms that we had talked about earlier. Most Indians at that time were not connected to global markets. There were not very many losers at the time. Most Indians didn't even talk about globalization. There was a survey done of how many people knew that big bang reforms, so-called big bang reforms had happened. Not very many people knew or cared, really. Their lives were quite unchanged by it. So you did those kinds of reforms, which we call like the stroke of pen reforms. You can just slash tariff rates on paper, etc. What we have to do now, these are very, very contentious reforms. So the other thing that... This government is trying to do is change the land law. The last government had just passed a law which said that when you acquire land involuntary, so business is saying basically that one of their big constraints to doing business in India is they don't have enough land to, to, I'm going to stop very quickly and open it up, to set up their businesses. And so we need a law that will make it easier for them to acquire agricultural land and convert it into factories. And of course, It's not so easy to take away somebody's land. And so the day I flew out of Delhi, there were marches going on, the parliament walked out, the government had submitted the land law. This is not going to be something that the government can just push because there are very large winners and losers and you need to take time and build consensus before these reforms will happen. So I don't think there can be any big bang reforms in, in India anytime soon, not things that touch this. Labor, one of the reasons why labor-intensive manufacturing has not taken off in India, unlike Southeast Asia, is we have have a very unique country that even after two decades of double-digit growth, only 7% of our workforce is in the formal labor market. That means they have a contract with somebody, then they get a paid wage. 50% are still in agriculture, the others are in the informal sector. They are doing something or the other in urban markets. They have a small shop, they're pulling a rickshaw. They're all self-employed. So they're not really covered by any labor regulations, but the ones that are have a very strongly unionized and the labor laws are quite old. And for example, any factory that employs more than 100 people has to get permission from the government to either hire or fire a single one now you can imagine then that most factories are below 100 people because nobody wants to approach the government i lived in cambodia for 5 years you would walk into a garment factory and it would have thousands of workers or indonesia or vietnam or anywhere you know so we are not able to compete in that way because we have never gone to scale on manufacturing because of these so now people want labor laws changed but again you know that's not going to be something easy now i mean you need a margaret thatcher or a, or a reagan to come and just say We are going to just abandon, you know, crush unions or whatever. In India, they have a very strong history. And then power sector. So very few people have access to energy. A lot of poor people will not be able to afford it if you charge the full price. And so basically, because it's a loss-making sector, not much investment has gone into it. And so businesses are saying we need to get people to pay the full price, but then there are, you know, protests on the street because nobody can really afford the full price. So again, very, very, three very contentious reforms which are going to bring people out on the streets and it will have to be negotiated very carefully so that whoever is going to win really compensates the losers you can't just take things away from people and say we just need to grow at double digit growth right so we don't i we don't think that firstly we, these should be big bang that you suddenly wake up one morning and change these and and you need to m- move very gradually and the government said, oh, we don't have time. We need to give signals to the business community that we are very business friendly. So instead of waiting to, for the parliament to meet and to pass the new land law, they just passed an ordinance. So they just, like a decree, which is very undemocratic and we don't really use that instrument a lot. And it really made the business community very happy to say, ah, this government is going to be very business friendly. But, you know, the day they actually had to submit that law to parliament, all hell broke loose saying, you know, you, we are a democratic country. You can't take these shortcuts to do whatever you want. So it's stalled and it's probably going to take them a long, long time to change any of these three sectors. So and you know, I mean that picture on the elephant is very telling that there's only one man sitting on it. So are we? do we want that model that you're flying with the top 1% of India and what happens to the rest? And this is a statement by, uh, from a speech just last week by Raghuram Rajan, who's our central bank governor who's talking about equality and the need to bring everybody along, talking about inclusive growth. Now it's very interesting because he's not just, he's not Amartya Sen, he's a professor from Chicago. So he's like, and then he was the chief economist for the IMF, so he can he's as right-wing as, as you can get when you use that term. And what is he saying? He's saying as long as we modulate the pace of liberalization to the pace at which we broaden economic capabilities, it is likely that the public will be supportive of reform. So economic inclusion, by which I mean ac- easing access to quality education, nutrition, healthcare, finance, and markets to all our citizens, is therefore a necessity for sustainable growth. It is also obviously a moral imperative, you know. So the conversation about growth for who? Do we, we are not wanting trickle down growth. It's never worked anywhere else, and it's certainly not going to work in India that you just say, Okay, let the 1% fly and then eventually maybe they'll be kind enough to share their wealth with the remaining 99%. So what we are saying is this government came, there's an index which the World Bank puts out. It says the ease of doing business in a country and we are rated 142 on it and Mr. Modi on the day he took office said, I'm going to make life very easy for business and we are going to be in the top 50 of this index very soon. So all the red tape and all of this, whatever makes life difficult for business people, I'm going to sort it all out. And what we are saying is do that. We need the growth, but at the same time, why don't we have the same aspiration to put us in the top 50 of the Human Development Index so that everybody has basic health, basic education, and they can also take part in these opportunities that markets are going to create. And also the Gender Inequality Index, where women can also take part in these opportunities that the market will create. And then this, if all this moves hand in hand, would be the way to have growth with equity in India rather than, you know, India flying off in some direction with some people and leaving the other 99% behind. Thank you very much. Is there a movement against inequality in India? If you look at now who is left in that bottom 20%, 25%, below the dollar 25, that... Group will not be very hard to, very easy to reach with just growth alone because it consists of certain social groups. So people, India is quite an unequal society. This is just inequality by class that is becoming more obvious. But we've had deep-rooted inequalities on the basis of caste. So in that group of 25%, you'll find a lot of Dalits. In that group, you will find a lot of Muslims. That's another very large community that is getting left behind in India. In that group, you will find a lot of tribal people who live in parts of India where they, li- they still derive their livelihoods out of forests. Those forests are being converted very quickly into mines and they're being displaced and not compensated and large parts of those parts of India are under armed conflict. One third of our districts are under armed conflict. So. It's very deeply entrenched inequality. So inequality has always been part of India's consciousness. But on the the income inequality now, this is something quite new for us actually. And what we are beginning to worry about is that nexus between economic power and political power. Every time a new parliament comes in, it's more and more millionaires and billionaires that are being elected into office. And therefore, when you worry about laws like this of who's going to own the land, the forest, the mineral wealth of India, if it's the rich people who are setting the laws for themselves, you're obviously going to get a country that is headed down a very disastrous path, right? It's just grabbing everything. The rich are grabbing everything for themselves. So I think the class inequality is something new. For Oxfam, it's a very big topic now. We are are really trying to talk about this 1% and 99% and the fact that, the 1% in the world with very soon, in two years' time, own as much wealth as the whole 99%. This is quite alarming. So suddenly, you know, we co-chaired Devos this year to start talking to the rich people to say, is this the kind of world you want to live in? And India has become one of the top, most unequal countries in the world, along with Brazil and South Africa. So I think the implications are just sinking in about what inequality would look like, and that kind of concentration between economic and political inequality. On uh, policy. so these indices are just aspirations to say we want to be, but if you break it down, then what is it? It's quality education for every child. For us, uh, our right to education law is only four years old that promises every child in India a basic education of eight years. It's taken us 60 years after independence to actually turn a promise which was in our constitution into something that you can sue the government if they don't build a primary school in every village. So getting, now every child in India is in school, how to actually get quality education, how to get teachers to show up to work, how to have public health clinics that work, how to have safety nets, food for every family as, at a minimum. We have a, one of the largest social security schemes in India which says for one person out of each family, guaranteed 100 days of employment in a year, some minimum things that will prevent you from crashing completely. This government is talking about doing away with a lot of these schemes and replacing them with a cash transfer. So we feel these schemes ought to be strengthened and made to work, as they are made to work in many southern states – Tamil Nadu does it very well, Kerala is doing some of these well – instead of just saying, oh, the government is not able to fight corruption and therefore it shouldn't really do much and leave everything to the private sector. That's kind of the mood at the moment in the country, that there's really very little role for the government and everything should be left to the private sector. So. Yeah, policies of, of health, education, all of those.
1: Uh, I'm going to ask, how is India going to cooperate and compete with China and other BRIC countries? So what is happening now is,
2: you know, China and a lot of East Asian countries have followed this path of labor-intensive growth for several decades, till they've reached a point where wages are rising and are becoming quite high. and. We feel this is a moment where India could take advantage as these factories relocate to finally start creating jobs in India. This is one of the big puzzling things of why we've really created not very many jobs if 93% of the people are still self-employed or are working in the informal sector. So we need to, different countries are at different stages of of development and as now if labor-intensive industry is going to move out of China, India can do that. But for us, the first thing is really looking at, I mean, agriculture is still the basic need of seeing how to focus on a sector which farm size is very, very tiny. Usually it's women who are doing the farming. The land titles are all in the name of men, and so women are not able to access imports or finance or credit. So to get property registered in the name of women, Getting, linking them to input and output markets, aggregating them into cooperatives. I, I'm not sure we're competing with, with BRIC countries or we just need to get our own house in order. I mean, they need to do what they need to do at their stage of development and India needs to do certain things where we look at where our poor people are deriving their incomes from and, and tackle those problems, I would say.
0: I have two full days in Cochin that I have nothing planned. And I'm wondering uh what you think would be the least offensive and the best way to um do my part and help the less fortunate within those two days. Like, just what do you think that I could do? Because I have nothing planned for them and I want to, like, really get out there. Do you, can you think of anything?
2: Well, just listen and learn, I think. <laughs> I don't think one can do a whole lot in two days, but you can, you know, They're, I mean, they're leading very resilient lives. Just find out what, I I don't know how, you know, what you're planning to do. We can have a separate conversation on that, I think, of how you want to spend your time and what you want to do.
0: Hello, yeah. Um, I think that with roughly 20% of the world's population. It's, uh, everybody's eyes are on India, you know. If there has so much potential to start developing new industries and, you know, industrializing 1.25 billion people, I would like to know if um, there's any intention or any kind of planning for India being a kind of a pioneer in exploring, you know, new technologies or a new way that is not necessarily following the United States model, but rather stabi- establishing their own way to go. I don't know, like either like nuclear or solar or other kind of um, energy e- energy sources that could be could lead India to a more sustainable like growth.
2: I think on energy, we are just beginning to now invest in solar, but it's still an expensive technology, but we do have large parts of the country, I mean, we have a lot of sunshine and we have large parts of the country where it is possible to invest, so this, the new prime minister is very keen on both nuclear and uh, solar energy, So, but we'll see, I mean, you know, it takes a lot of uh, financial resources. The bulk of energy still comes from coal, but hardly say 20 to 30 percent of the people have even have access to any kind of energy. So the first priority is really just getting energy to people. If you can do it already in a way that is clean and green, then so much the better. But you know, it, it is a very costly. This whole dialogue of why things are stuck on a deal on climate change, you know, is this whole question of who should pay for clean technology for developing countries. And it's not an us and them, but to say, but That's where it's stuck to say that the developed world is is the one that is consuming on a per capita basis a much larger proportion of energy and that they have caused historically this problem of global warming and they should therefore then, the word climate justice that is used in this way to say that should compensate developing countries if you want people to plant more trees or switch to cleaner and greener energies it's very costly and then As a global community, we should pay for it rather than put the whole burden for financing that on developing countries. But I think countries are beginning to recognize that it's a, you know, our own people are suffering and if if China has basically done a deal now because it had become the most, uh, Beijing had become the most polluted city and its own citizens took that cause up, now New Delhi is the most polluted city in the world. So suddenly now you are for the first time reading about environmental issues on the front page every day and that pressure is building up to Start tackling it at home and not waiting till somebody actually finances it or, you know, pays for it.
0: So I spent about eight months in India in 2012, mostly in the villages in Bihar and Jharkhand, And I was struck by the really strong contrast between those laws coming from the top level, the government laws like the Right to Education Act and various welfare schemes to really try and lift people out of poverty and then the practical failure to actually implement them at the village level due to corruption and illiteracy and and so many other issues so could you just speak about that how does one bridge that gulf
2: so this is this is the biggest challenge in india actually most of our laws whether it's the domestic violence law or the right to education or the right to information they're quite state-of-the-art But there's a huge gap between the law on paper and what is actually happening at the village level, as you're saying. And what uh, NGOs like Oxfam do is basically bridge that gap. So what we do is we fund local NGOs in Bihar, in Jharkhand, in all the seven of the poorest states in India, and we raise awareness about these laws at the local level to inform communities that there's a new law which says that you have the right to have a primary school or you have the right to have a clinic and if you organize yourself and you, uh, you know, go and demand these rights from the government. So it, it's that kind of approach. So even government officials will say that if you look at two villages side by side and one where there's an NGO working to make people aware of their rights and all the different government policies and programs and a, and a village next door where not, not much change is happening, the only difference you can see is that some NGO is actually trying to bring these laws down to the ground for poor people. And so we fund these community-based NGOs so the law will be passed. It says, for example, the right to education law, that school management committees should be set up, which involve parents. They should hold the teachers accountable and make sure they actually show up or that a meal is served in the school. So until all that governance infrastructure and uh, so on is set up, and that's all done by making people aware about these laws and their rights and their responsibilities to make these laws work. So so that that is what uh, NGOs like us do, actually. I mean, the government does very little of that, unfortunately. So it's very patchy, the implementation of things. But by and large, you will see that southern states are, most of these schemes work quite well. People are quite literate. Uh, Governments are much more competent. Kerala has 100% literacy rate for a long time, you know, whereas in UP, Bihar, Jharkhand, it would be 40 or 50% still. So this is, yeah. So I first wanted to
0: thank you for coming and taking your time to speak with us. I think we all appreciate it greatly. So that's how I wanted to start out. And my question for you is, it seems like India has a lot of social issues and a lot of issues that they're trying to sort within just their country. And I'm curious to know, um, does Oxfam have different sectors that, or like a specific issue that they're most focused on that they see as the biggest problem to find a solution to since...
2: No, so we work on four thematic areas. People's livelihoods, you know, how they earn an income, then right to essential services to health and education, then on gender issues, and lastly on humanitarian, on disasters, because that's how we started originally. So we don't... You, everything needs to go hand-in-hand hand for development to happen, so we don't focus on any particular sector. What holds it all together is that we usually support local struggles. Where... There's some leadership that has emerged at local level and somebody's trying to sort their problems. We go in and we support them. So we fund community-based NGOs who are trying to raise awareness in people about their own rights. So it's really, let's say, creating a better demand for governance. That's what holds it together. So we are not an expert in health or education or anything. We are... We really are really, uh, we raise awareness, we create social groups, social capital, so that collectively people can demand their rights. Let's put it that way. And we work with the most marginalized communities to do that. Because those are the ones that tend to get left behind. So we pick very carefully where we we put our limited resources. Thank you.
0: Since 1963, Semester at Sea has given over 73,000 individuals from 1,700 academic institutions an unparalleled experience of visiting more than 60 different countries across six of the seven continents. If you or someone you know wishes to apply or donate to this world-shifting experience, please visit semesteratsea.org for more information. That's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Special thank you to Nisha and everyone else involved. To any alumni, please reach out to the show. The content on this show is possible with your help and your experiences. Check out the email in the description below. Once again, to apply, donate, or learn more, please visit semesteratsea.org. The Semester at Sea podcast will be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Until then, sailing off.